So this evening, um, I'd like to offer a few reflections on the themes of joy and happiness, which are very prominent themes in the Buddha's teaching, both as fruits of the practice and the path, and also as qualities that we can intentionally cultivate. And I wonder what your uh, reaction is to hearing that that's going to be the theme of this evening's talk. Uh, And more specifically, uh, I wonder what your beliefs are about your own capacity for joy and for happiness. It's, it's so helpful to uncover our unconscious assumptions and beliefs around this theme. You know, how happy do you think you're able to be given how your life is? And when we start to inquire in that way, we can often notice Beliefs such as, I can't really be happy unless or until something happens. Or, I can't really be happy given what's happened in the past. Or, I don't deserve to be joyful and happy. Or it feels kind of scary to let my guard down and let happiness in. And it's so helpful and so interesting just to notice, you know, what are the beliefs that somehow close us down around these themes of joy and happiness? Because they can become really habitual and really unconscious and can also write our biography if we let them. You know, all the ways in which we make our happiness conditional upon things being a certain way, upon the circumstances of our lives. And of course, the radical possibility that the Buddha was pointing to is a happiness not dependent on circumstances. That maybe there's nothing we have to get or fix or get rid of in order to allow more joy, more happiness into our lives. And and sometimes what we can be off-put by is the sort of imagining of, of what it might look like to live a life in which joy was a more frequent visitor. We can have this sort of idea of some sort of Pollyanna attitude that that is about some sugary glee trip, you know, where we're just uh, not taking account of the, the way things are. And of course, that's not what's being pointed to here. The Buddha's word for this kind of happiness was, was sukha, Sukha, S-U-K-H-A, which in Pali simply means a good space. A good space. And really what we're talking about is what would it be like to allow a sense of a good space, a sense of well-being, a sense of contentment to infuse more of the moments of our day. And we can see, can't we, that that for very good evolutionary reasons, our attention tends to go to what's wrong, doesn't it? You know, to what's wrong, what's lacking, what's insufficient. And we can see why, can't we? You know, our, our ancestors depended upon that sort of survival vigilance that, that was alert to, highly alert to, 
where there was a sense of threat or danger or lack. As, as one neuroscientist said, you know, um, it, it, the, our ancestors that were blithely happy with the way things are were the ones that tended to get eaten. So what we inherited were the ne- neurotic, hypervigilant genes, you know, that make us very conscious of what's wrong. Uh, and we can also see how the mechanism of comparison, which can be so corrosive of our happiness could also be explained looking through an evolutionary lens that sense of of what am I lacking in comparison with others as as, um, Rick Hansen who's a a Dharma teacher and neuroscientist puts it our, 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 our minds and brains are like Teflon for good experiences and like Velcro for bad ones you know that the good ones slide off and we focus on what's wrong and what's difficult. And, and we can really see that, you know, from an evolutionary point of view, our, our minds evolved for survival, not for happiness. You know, happiness takes training. Happiness takes practice. And that's really what the Buddha was, was pointing to. And it's interesting that in... In the Buddhist schema of the Brahma Viharas, these four qualities that, that we've referred to already on this retreat, and that, that most people will be familiar with, of, of metta, friendliness, loving-kindness, karuna, compassion, mudita, appreciative joy, and upeka, uh, equanimity. It's mudita that's seen as the most difficult one to cultivate because of all the obstacles to it. Uh, and so really what it requires, because our, our brains are not, or our minds are not inclined that way, it really takes a, a deliberate choice, a deliberate choice to cultivate joy and happiness. A daily commitment, if you like, that come what may, I'm going to practice these qualities of well-being, these qualities of joy, of happiness, of openness in the midst of circumstances. And the Buddha again and again points to the power of our intentions. The power of our intentions that, that shape our perception and therefore shape our experience. As he put it, whatever the mind frequently dwells upon becomes the shape of the mind. Such a useful reminder. Whatever the mind frequently dwells upon becomes the shape of the mind. And of course, contemporary neuroscience shows that to be true. And what this means is, is... Actually, just to to add, not just contemporary neuroscience, our own experience, more importantly, can show this to be true, that that through an honest and committed exploration of what activities, what practices, and what ways of seeing truly support our well-being and our happiness, and what do not, which ones don't. And this really is as profound an exploration as the exploration of suffering. In fact, it's the same exploration viewed from a different side, isn't it? This, this exploration of what supports joy, what supports well-being, what supports happiness. And as, as Rob sometimes comments, the Buddha was perhaps unusually, almost uniquely dogged in his commitment to this search for happiness. Most people tend to settle for lesser happinesses, lesser joys. And the Buddha was, was determined to see through the illusions that certain happinesses offer, that lesser happinesses offer, and really pursue the highest happiness. It's how he described the happiness of liberation. 
And really what this starts with, I think, is, if you like, reversing that Teflon tendency and instead noticing and appreciating the good and pleasant experiences and states of mind that are already here. You know, if you just think through today, there probably were some moments of calm or some moments of enjoyment. Maybe some moments when you were out in the garden or when you were just simply with the body as it sat and breathed. Some moments where there was a sense of releasing or relaxing or letting go. Or some moments of kindness. And really the, the cultivation of this quality of joy and this quality of, of sukha or contentment or happiness really begins by valuing these experiences. You know, I, I think in my experience, the people I know who've been the most content have not been the cleverest or richest or most successful, they've been the most appreciative. And I wonder if that's true for you too. The most appreciative. We can really see how this quality of appreciation that opens our attention, that is receptive to something uplifting or peaceful or kind, in the moment, or is even just receptive to the spaciousness of the moment. That quality of appreciation somehow lifts the mind, lifts the heart, brightens it. You can even practice it sitting here right now. What is it to open the attention into a quality of appreciation just for the experience of being here? It's a way of really, as one teacher puts it, enabling the good facts of our lives to become good experiences. So that the good things in our lives aren't just things we sort of know about cognitively, but become something that really nourish us, really nourish our hearts. And there's a practice that some people call taking in the good, which is is just when something good happens, when something uplifting happens, really pausing and, and letting it brighten the mind, letting it soak into the body, really letting ourselves be nourished by it at a, at a deeper, more cellular level. really invite you to practice that while you're here. You know, to let a moment's peace or something beautiful in nature or just when you remember, nourish you more deeply by, by if you like, feeling it in the body, letting it soak into the body. And there's a, a subtle deepening that can happen when we move from I feel good to this is how it feels to feel good. When there's that sort of metacognitive awareness, as they call it, that recognizes, ah, this is a good experience. I'm going to let myself be nourished by it. And, And we can feel how close this is to the experience of gratitude. In fact, there's a one Dharma teacher in America who's coined a term gradita, which is a, a combination of gratitude and this word mudita. Sounds a bit like a breakfast cereal, but what he's, he's talking about is this sense of letting the heart be nourished and opened by the sense of gratitude. And we know just what a powerful 
force that is. Meister Eckhart, the Christian mystic, said, if the only prayer you ever say is thank you, that will suffice. And, and contemporary research into gratitude has shown just what a remarkable um, shaper of the mind and supporter of our well-being it, it is. And uh, interesting research that shows that just simply to write a letter of gratitude to somebody who you've appreciated in your life and to deliver it can give a profoundly powerful uh, boost to our sense of well-being. And research with with teenagers that shows that if for three weeks they write down, once a day, write down three things they're grateful for, that you can measure the results months and months and months later. And that a lot of them will keep doing it even after the end of the the period they've been asked to do it for. We used to do it at the school that I taught at. I think it's a really beautiful practice, perhaps particularly as we come to the end of a year, to reflect on, well, what are we grateful for? What am I grateful for? And to let that become an experience, not just a fact. We can also see the, the close relationship between this quality of appreciation and a sense of curiosity. Don't you notice that the mind enjoys curiosity and discovery? Uh, and this is something that we can really uh, bring to our practice and deliberately cultivate a sense of curiosity about what's going on. It's the it's the wisdom behind that famous saying about beginner's mind, you know, that, that, that in, in the beginner's mind there are many possibilities, but in an expert's mind there are few. And so part of what we're cultivating in the practice is this openness of mind, this freshness of curiosity that investigates without so many preconceptions. And that in some way is about sort of rediscovering a, a freshness and a liveness that, that uh, we probably had as children. Uh, one of my uh, favorite little books is this book, Children's Letters to God. I don't know if you've, you've come across them, but there are some really delightful ones. Dear God, are you really invisible or is that just a trick? Lucy. Um, Dear God, um, do animals use you, or is there somebody else for them? (laughs) And then, um, just read you just a few, because they are quite delightful. Dear God, I think the stapler is one of your greatest inventions. (laughs) (laughs) Um. (laughs) Um. Yeah. Dear God, I read the Bible. What does begat mean? <laughs> Nobody will tell me. <laughs> and the uh, last one. Dear God, I didn't think orange went with purple until I saw the sunset you made on Tuesday. <laughs> that was cool. <laughs> Eugene, underlined. <laughs> And just that sort of, what would it be like to bring that sort of freshness, that sort of aliveness, that sort of playfulness to our practice? You know, that, that great poet of, uh, of both the, the beautiful, fresh aliveness of innocence and the, the sort of weightiness of experience, William Blake, he said, I think this is a really important quotation as well, if the doors of perception were cleansed, Everything would appear to us as it is, infinite. But we've closed ourselves up till we see all things through the narrow chinks of our cavern. We can really see that, that to cultivate joy in a certain way is to refresh our vision. To refresh our vision 
I think it's also really about knowing what activities support joy. Do you know what activities bring you joy? And do you ensure that you regularly make time for them? It's, uh, there's, a, there's a lovely awakening joy course that is Dharma-based and is run by uh, a guy called James Baraz, who's a, who's a wonderful uh, teacher at Spirit Rock Meditation Center in America. Uh, and one of the, it's a 10-month online course, and one of James's key pieces of advice in it is sing every day. Sing every day. And for you it may not be singing, but what is it? What is the, the creativity or the sense of play or the, the activity that brings you alive? And I, I know, and I'm sure we all know, just how easy it is to jettison the things that bring us alive or that bring us joy when we get busy. And how important it is to keep making time for them. You know, really to, to explore with, with a real commitment what supports my vitality, what supports my aliveness, what activities really nourish me. And, and all of these, these, these themes of you know, appreciation and gratitude of curiosity and of, if you like, the activities that bring us joy. They're all really in support of a a principle that the Buddha, I think is so important in the Buddha's teachings, the principle that he illustrated with the image of a salt crystal. And he said, you know, if you put a salt crystal in a cup of water and try to drink it, you know, it's just bitter and you know, it's, you, you can't drink it. It's unfit for drinking. Put that salt crystal into the river Ganges, which in his day sounds like was drinkable. Uh, <laughs> makes a, you know, it becomes drinkable. And he's using this as an image for, for our suffering and our difficulties. You know, that, that actually often our sense of joy and resource is so diminished that it's overwhelming when we have an experience of suffering. It's undrinkable. But if, as part of our practice, we're cultivating this, what he called largeness of heart, this big-heartedness, this, this sense of well-being, this sense of sukha, then it's like the suffering is more like the, the, the crystal in the Ganges than the crystal in the cup. D- d- does that make sense, that image? I think it's really helpful and it's a real key to you know, our resilience in the face of life's difficulties. You know, it really, there's, a certain, uh, there's a certain sort of André Gide, the, the French philosopher, said there was a moral urgency to cultivating happiness and well-being. You know? There's a real way in which it's, uh, particularly in difficult times, you know, the difficult times that, that, that we're going through, this is not a luxury. <laughs> you know, this is a profound support. And of course, it also involves investigating what are the obstacles What are the obstacles that block me off from a sense of joy? What are the the habits? What are the ways of seeing that close us into that cavern that, that William Blake was talking about? What blocks my aliveness? Really encourage that reflection. What blocks my aliveness? And, and when we look, we can often see that, that somewhere in underlying those, those ways of seeing is a belief in insufficiency, a belief in lack. 
a, a perception that somehow my life is not as it should be or as it needs to be if I'm really to be happy. sense that there's something wrong with my life. And these, com- these sorts of beliefs can gradually accrete over time and, and that difficult events can, can seem to confirm and strengthen them. And almost without our noticing, they can block out or sort of occlude or, or narrow our vision, limit our freedom of heart. It can become deeply habitual. And we can also see how habits of comparison, you know, that that belief that other people have something that I don't have, that I need to have in order to be happy. The the Buddha pointed out just how, how toxic those habits of comparison and, and the envy that can come with them are for our well-being. And the belief that's in there that somehow it's possessions or particular life circumstances that determine our happiness, that determine our well-being. And in, in the face of this really... Exploring what it's like to practice enoughness. You know, what's it like really to let this moment's wakefulness, kindness, and the sort of fullness that comes when we really open to the moment's experience? particularly when we open appreciatively. What's it like to let this be enough? You know, this moment is like this, and that's okay. It can be a really useful sort of cognition or perception to practice. This moment is like this, and that's okay. And we see that, that part of what this involves is a deep and deepening reconciliation with the first noble truth that the Buddha pointed to. That there is dukkha, there is unsatisfactoriness. That, to put it more colloquially, that, that life is difficult involves difficulty. And that that's not our fault. It's not a sign that we're doing something wrong. This is really powerful medicine. These noble truths can be experienced and open to on Many deepening levels. But really just to make a a daily commitment of really opening to that sense that this is how life is and that my demand that somehow it should be other than this in order for me to experience joy or happiness. Really just to see what, do I need to hold on to that demand? So often there's, there's that sense it shouldn't be this way. And we can feel that it's that resistance that actually is the obstacle to a greater sense of joy or a greater sense of well-being or to a resting into the moment as it is. One of the Zen patriarchs described liberation as non-anxiety about imperfection. I find that sometimes a useful phrase. 
to remember in the midst of the busyness of things. And of course, what it really means is that the whole idea of imperfection dissolves, you know. And that this work of cultivating joy, cultivating happiness, it is, is really, if you like, also second noble truth work. You know, this second noble truth that identifies the origins of dukkha, the origins of this unsatisfactoriness in this quality of craving, this quality of tanha, this quality of a sort of unquenchable thirst. And, And really when we look, we can see how a whole bunch of things co-arise and support each other, the comparison with others, the belief in insufficiency, the sense of craving, of longing, the sense of discontent, the stories about myself, what Eckhart Tolle calls the the thought-based me and its unsatisfying story. We can see how all these factors co-arise and support each other. And and that the the craving that is supported by that belief in insufficiency is unquenchable. That that nothing we could give it to satisfy it would satisfy it because it's, it's, it's craving and it's belief... It's supported by this this sort of deep belief that there's not enough in some way. This is so powerfully, graphically uh, symbolized in the image of the hungry ghosts in Buddhist cosmology. These beings that have huge bellies and tiny pinhole mouths. So that no no matter how much they put into their mouths can satisfy the, 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 the craving that's driving them and there are the images of sort of knives sticking out of the bellies just representing how painful that is. And so part of our work with the noble truths can be to begin really to recognize how these factors feed each other, how comparing ourselves with others, how how there's a, a belief in a lack there, how the sense of discontent how the stories that we can so easily believe about what's lacking in my life or not enough in my life, how these support and feed each other and how they can shift together when we intervene and in the midst of difficulty we practice a sense of appreciation or we practice a sense of gratitude or we practice a sense of enoughness or we practice a sense of generosity. The Buddha taught generosity is such a powerful antidote because it, it totally um, gainsays or contradicts the story of lack, doesn't it, generosity? You know, we, we practice generosity, we make it a practice because it, if you like, tells a different story which is one of abundance and sharing. You know. So we can see that, that this practice of joy and happiness requires quite a radical reorientation, moment by moment. A, a real a real turning towards, a real making peace with how things are or how they seem. This moment is like this and that's okay. A radical letting go of our models of how we think things should be or how they need to be. And a radical questioning of our ways of seeing. The ways of seeing that support these stories. The ways of seeing that somehow concretize our view of how we think things are. And the ways of seeing that somehow shape our experience around a sense of lack. 
And, and this can be profoundly challenging, can't it? You know, it, it can mean grieving. It can mean opening to the pain of a sense of loss or a sense of absence. That really, to open to joy may involve also opening to tears. And a deep reconciliation with the way life is or the way life seems. And it's a practice to be held with with a great kindness, a great compassion. A compassion for the sorrow we may feel or the resistance we may feel or the struggle that we may feel in the midst of things that we're really not grateful for. That sense that the you know, I may not be able to accept this situation, but can I at least befriend my feelings about it? Can I befriend, can I allow my feelings about it? Because as we do this, we can see that the real uh, enemy, if you like, of joy and happiness is ill will is aversion, is resistance. The aversion we can so easily have to our experience or to our ideas of ourselves or to our bodies or to other people, to our world. And that the practice of befriending, the practice of befriending, the practice of compassionately making peace with how things are and also of of deeply questioning how we're seeing things is a practice that can unlock a sense of joy can unlock a sense of well-being because we can see that grasping and resistance and unhappiness feed each other you know the more grasping and resistance there is the more unhappiness is fed and the more there's a sense of unhappiness that's not held with a sense of mindfulness or a sense of compassion, the more we can so easily end up grasping and resisting. And just as that's true, so letting go and joy feed each other. That the, the more there's a sense of letting go, of opening, of compassionately befriending, the more joy is fed. And that the more joy there is, the more that letting go becomes possible or becomes supported. And we can see in this context the the deep wisdom of the Buddha's encouragement to rejoice in the happiness of others. The generosity of being able to practice rejoicing in the happiness of others. Being able to say, as the traditional phrase is, go, may your happiness continue. May it increase. To be able to say that when we see someone else's joy or we come into contact with somebody else's joy. It's a beautiful thing and initially we can feel a lot of resistance and it can feel dry But actually, it's a practice we can really cultivate. And we can see how it absolutely goes to the root of the grasping and resistance that actually block off our own joy. And so what we're talking about here is a a growing freedom and spaciousness 
a spaciousness with the circumstances of our lives that comes through allowing, through accepting, through befriending, through questioning, through cultivating and through giving in a way that really transforms, gradually transforms the way we experience the circumstances of our lives. Krishnamurti put it like this. He said, do you want to know the secret of my happiness? I don't mind what happens. And that can feel like a real stretch when we hear it. But maybe it can point towards a freedom that can also inspire. And we can see that this freeing, this freeing, is also at some level a simplifying. Because we can... We can notice how the quality of dukkha, this quality of unsatisfactoriness, has as one of its characteristics a sense of accumulation and compounding of views and opinions and resistance and reactivity. And that that joy, this quality of appreciative joy, has a sense of being more simply present that somehow there's a letting go into the heart's natural state when it's less bound maybe joy is our natural the natural state of the heart unbound and that doesn't have to be just an impossible ideal that's something we can experience something we can practice something we can even taste in a moment of just appreciatively opening to our experience as it is in the moment and there's much that could be said about this simplifying there's much that could be said about the simplifying in terms of all our possessions that that can so often be accumulate to a sense of anxiety <laughs> or the, the, the simplifying of our activities because we know, don't we, that busyness can be such an enemy of joy. The simplifying of our views. But it's something I think that a retreat gives such a beautiful opportunity to experience and to explore. What is it to practice a a kindly renunciation, a kindly letting go, a kindly simplifying of our experience? And we can also see that there's something that our heart really responds to as we move more and more into line with what we most deeply value. We can really see, as as Rob mentioned last night, how, for instance, the practice of ethics can be such a support to a sense of joy. The Buddha called it the bliss of blamelessness. The bliss of blamelessness where the anxiety or the guilt or the regret that can come when we don't live in a way that's congruent with our values, those no longer need to trouble us. When we really move into line with a sense of integrity, And also move into line with the sense of, more generally, what do I most value? What do I know to be most true about myself, 
and about life. And that there's something really supportive to our well-being to move more and more into line with that. And this is a project over years and decades as many, many people here know. And ultimately what this experience points to is the joy of practice itself, the joy of Dharma itself, the joy of moving into line with the way things are and really seeing that that's the most trustworthy thing. It's the most trustworthy thing in terms of supporting our, our well-being. Discovering a, a well-being that's not dependent on the dance of pleasant and unpleasant conditions. It's a well-being that has equanimity as its deepest quality and that starts from this intention, this choice to practice, this choice to cultivate joy. And joy in the path. And I'd like to end with a little uh, story of, <clears throat> in fact, James Baraz's mother. I mentioned James as his Dharma teacher. Um, and um, James, uh, <clears throat> James's mother uh, is is a, is, a, is is Jewish, and uh, in her 89th year she reluctantly took on a gratitude and joy practice that James persuaded her to try. Because she'd said that for most of the decades previous to that, her, her basic joy had been in what she called kvetching, which um, uh, some people here will know means sort of complaining uh, and, and worrying about things. As in the story that James sometimes tells of the Jewish mother who sent the telegram to her son, Start worrying. Details to follow. <laughs> and uh, James's mum was, was um, really reluctant to try this practice. But what he encouraged her to do was, was whenever she noticed herself complaining, to add the phrase, and my life is really very blessed. <laughs> so, so she would sort of moan about the weather and James would say, and... <laughs> And she had to add, my life is really very blessed. And she tried it, and the effects were remarkable. The effects were remarkable. You can see, in fact, if you look on the Awakening Joy website, a wonderful um, interview with her when she talks about how James ruined her life with his joy practice. Uh, and on her 90th birthday, she wrote these, these few lines um, of a poem. And it's worth saying particularly as this is a story about the power of ways of seeing, the effect of ways of seeing, that during this period when she was doing this practice, she also lost her sight. So she, she, she uh, became, started to become really blind. And so on her 90th birthday, she wrote this. 90 is just fine with me. I no longer rant and rave about where the world is heading and my exclusive job to save. I wallow in contentment and know that I am blessed, awakening to the joy of living at its very best. I'm happier than I've ever been and truly mean each word. The thoughts that caused the worries now all seem so absurd. Though my eyesight has been dimmed, I see clearer than before. The glass is not half empty. It's overflowing, to be sure. And I think at the end of a year is a good time to try out that practice. You know, which story 
are you going to tell? Which story are you going to practice telling? The story of lack or the story of blessings? One of the, um, the other traditional sayings in this practice is, may you appreciate the blessings of your life. And we could add, and enjoy sharing them with others. And I wish that for each of you. Thank you. Let's sit for a little while. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.